Well, I am, you know, uh, excited to continue the series that we started last Sunday entitled Mysteries of the Kingdom. Uh, and, you know, it's, I'm, I'm excited for a lot of things. I mean, every time I prepare and preach the Word, I'm actually gaining more insight and revelation myself. So there's a little bit of a selfish motive in all this, but it's, it's never ending. Revelation and understanding will be a fact of your life as long as you're on this earth. And that's the way it should be. Uh, basically, I think that a lack of understanding is the greatest challenge people have in dealing with frustration and confusion and discontent. It's not knowing why something happened, why something didn't happen. This is true for believers and unbelievers alike. For believers, very often, it's not understanding why God didn't respond the way you wanted Him to, or why are you experiencing this, or why is that happening? The lack of understanding is really the basis of more uh, frustration and upset in the human heart uh, on a long-term basis than just about anything else could be. And it's always the beginning of unbelief. So revelation is hugely, hugely important. The dispersal of not understanding is a significant thing in everybody's life. And that's what a mystery is. A mystery is something that's not profitable to your understanding. The Greek word actually means, musterion actually means not profitable to natural understanding. You don't understand something. And so by gaining an increasing amount of revelation, and essentially, once you see this is a process of God uh, that's going to occur in your life, if you position your life for it, uh, then, you know, even the things you don't understand right now, you know when the time is right, you're going to get it. You're not going to see through a glass darkly anymore. And so basically, uh, I think, the mysteries of God, there are 10 of them uh, that I want to preach about a little bit because to me they are the cornerstone of the quality of life you have on this earth. Having revelation regarding the particular things that God says is, is a mystery, are mysteries. You know, he tells us in Mark 4 as we studied last week that it's given to us to know the mysteries of the kingdom. You are given to know. It is the will of God that you know these things, that you have this revelation continue, and that your understanding always grows. It is a truth, however, that it doesn't happen automatically. Just because it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, that means it's not given to people who are unsaved, who are unbelievers to know the mysteries. That's what casting your pearl before swine's all about. You don't, I mean, they are not given to know. Not calling anybody swine. That's an analogy that, you know, the Bible uses. But it simply means that it's inappropriate to try to uh, convey something that God says they can't understand. And so you don't discuss Scripture with unbelievers. It'll alienate them further from you and probably undermine a little bit of your own faith if they're good with the words. 
And so basically, you know, you don't, you don't have access to these mysteries until you're converted, Mark 4 says, and your sins are forgiven, or you're born again. Then it's given to you to know these mysteries. But the mysteries don't just get unveiled regardless of what you do. You have responsibilities in order to enable revelation to come. And the first of those responsibilities is acquiring the knowledge. Knowledge and revelation are not the same. A lot of people know what the Word says, can even quote it, but they've never had revelation of it, so it's not fruitful in their life. So having knowledge does not mean that revelation is automatic, but you can't have revelation at all <clears throat> without the knowledge first being imparted or acquired. So that means you need to read the Bible. If you want to know about the mysteries of the kingdom, then you need to read the Word. You need to read the Word of God, learn, uh, study, to show yourself approved, the Word says. And as you do, then you're positioning your life for revelation. The second part to the process is to trust God to reveal things to you. I've often said to, to people, you know, well, why did she die? Or why did they go on to be with the Lord? Or why did this or that happen? And I say, look, if there's something you don't get, just kind of put it on the mental shelf and keep it before the Lord, and the day will come when you'll probably see it. Some things you may not get until you go home to be with the Lord, but it's His will to bring you as much revelation as you can accommodate in this life because that's where blessing and growth comes. It's impossible to realize the fullness of God's will for your life without revelation. So study gather the information, the knowledge, and then trust God to reveal it to you when the time is right. When you're able to handle it, when you're able to plug it into, you know, the other puzzle pieces of your life, believe Him to reveal it at that point. Or when you're mature enough to absorb it properly, whatever the case may be. Trust Him. You do the study, trust Him to show you what you need in this life, and then the revelation will come. And it'll come with some degree of consistency. Now, in talking about the ten mysteries of the kingdom, there's one of these ten that I believe is fundamental to your Christian pursuit. Because it provides the context, the larger context within which the other mysteries of the kingdom are going to make sense. And so they will fit and they'll flow with the revealed will of God for your life individually or larger considerations, whatever they may be. This one mystery is all-encompassing, provides the larger context within which the other mysteries are going to fit and make sense and understanding can come. So that's where I want to begin this morning, providing this larger context uh, so we'll look at the first mystery today by going to Romans chapter 16, verse 25. And I want to do this from the Amplified, which I believe they're putting on the screens behind me. And the Word says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, just says he's able to, doesn't say will, to strengthen you in the faith. 
The King James, original King James says, uh, who will establish you, establish you. And in the concordance, that word is defined as steadfastly set. I mean, you're in the right place when God steadfastly sets you in the faith. Or as it says here, strengthens you in the faith. But at this point, he's only able. Now, the faith is in accordance with, Paul says, my gospel. Now, sometimes we look at the word gospel and we think it's talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Paul says, my gospel. The word gospel just means good news. Paul preached most of the rest of the New Testament. And, uh, you know, so basically you could almost say, able to strengthen you in the faith, of course, that being in accordance with the New Testament and the preaching of concerning Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So you have to hear the word preached about the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, about what he did, who he was, who he is, and what he did. You got to know that together with the rest of the New Testament. Now it says that he can strengthen you. It says he's able to, but now he can according to the revelation. So you have to have revelation or the unveiling of this mystery, the mystery of the plan of redemption. This is the larger context of understanding we have to have for all of the other mysteries we're going to be talking about to fit right, to flow right, and for you to really understand the big picture. You have to start with the mystery of the plan of redemption, which was kept in silence and secret for long ages. Of course, redemption is consummated in the ministry of Jesus for humanity, I should say. It's consummated in the redemption of Jesus Christ, and that was kept in silence and secret for long ages. The prophets of the Old Testament never saw his first advent. They saw the second advent when his physical earthly kingdom was to be established, but they saw right across the church age they did not see his first advent. It was kept silent and secret for long ages. As 1 Corinthians, we see in 1 Corinthians 2, that's why Paul said, you know, if the princes of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But now it's unveiled to us, those who are saved, washed in the blood, born again, believers. It's given to us to know, beginning with this big mystery called the plan of redemption, which provides the larger context for the rest of our understanding. So that's where we'll begin, the plan of redemption. And we think in terms, you know, if we don't think in any depth about it, of it being uh, for humanity, you know, what Jesus did on the cross for us. And of course, that is a key part of the redemptive plan of God, uh, you know, very important part. But redemption actually applies to all of creation. Not just our personal life or not just humanity. Redemption applies to all of creation, you know, and to put us where 
we need to be going into the eternal ages to come, aligned with God's perfect will. And so we need to go back to the beginning where all the trouble started and see and understand just what, you know, we and creation are being redeemed from. Redemption is defined as recovering something that is lost. So where was there the first loss to God's perfect will for all of creation? We have to go back to the beginning for that, and by that I mean Genesis 1, verse 1. Now some of what I preach this morning, most of what I preach, I guess, I have preached before. I've preached this, you know, over the 40 years past, probably, you know, eight or ten times. So if you've been here a while, uh, you already know this. I am quite certain from questions and comments that have come over the last year or two that it needs to be preached again. And remember now, we're looking at the, the whole plan of God, the whole plan of redemption as it affects creation as well as humanity. And it goes back to the very beginning. So in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Genesis, we read the familiar passage, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And of course, I should probably say that it is my humble opinion that this implies to us that heaven is a planet as well as the earth. So we'll start, you know, stepping on a few sacred cows here right out of the box uh, but, you know, when you read this, you see uh, the proper context of this is, if you go on and continue reading and you see that God made man in his image and likeness, uh, it's only appropriate to suspect that he made earth in heaven's image and likeness to house the apex of God's creation, mankind. And so basically, I do believe heaven is not just a figment of our uh, spiritual imagination or a, a, a nebulous place where our spirit goes when we die. I believe it's an actual place, a real place, a planet in the universal creation where God resides. Earth is where his man resides, made in his image in his likeness. And the capital city of the planet heaven is the new Jerusalem, which he says when he takes up eternal habitation with mankind in the eternal ages to come, he is literally going to transplant the capital city now on the planet heaven to the planet earth. Whoa, preacher, you're getting kind of wild here. No, th these are things that I think you have to consider. It's part of the revelation of the plan of redemption that has to come. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and now creation began. I would like to suggest that's wrong, because the Bible teaches in other places that God never creates 
without form or void. The word rendered without form and void is the Hebrew word tohu, T-O-H-U. And if you look it up in the concordance, it means utter desolation, emptiness, emptiness, utter desolation, no life, a complete wilderness. And we'll read that in a moment somewhere else. And God creates nothing that way. Uh, so what, what, why does it say the earth was without form and void? Well, the key is the word was, the Hebrew word was, which is haya, H-A-Y-A-H, used over 500 times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. Uh, it's never translated was except here because it literally means became. Every other time, it is either became or becamest or, you know, a uh, different rendering of became. It's never translated was, only here. So that's like to say the translators couldn't get over themselves. They couldn't, they didn't, they didn't grasp the meaning. But in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and He creates perfectly. He creates paradise he creates beautifully. He creates to be inhabited. So something happened that the earth became without form and void, and now the process of recreation is required. And that's why, as we'll see in a moment, that terminology, terminology is used later about replenishing the earth. Why didn't he just say populate the earth? Because it had already been populated. This is a replenishment that was needed because something catastrophic happened on the planet Earth that made this beautiful paradise, made in the image and likeness of heaven itself, populated, filled with life and goodness and, uh, uh, you know, these kinds of things. What happened? That made it a desolate wilderness empty of all life, because that was the case in verse 2. Well, let's take a look at, um, I think there's one other verse that I want to use to establish the fact that God doesn't create anything without form or void. Let's look at um, Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain. That is the same word. That is tohu, which is, is, is translated without form and void in Genesis 1-2. Here, it's the exact same word that says he created it not in vain, tohu. He formed it to be inhabited. So in the beginning when God created, same word it's used here in Isaiah, he created it not in vain. God created it to be inhabited in the beginning, and it was. And so, you know, um, without getting too hung up and too verbal, uh, verbose about all of this, because man, 
I'm so tempted to go on a dozen different rabbit trails. But uh, let's, let's, let's focus our attention on what happened that brought this utter desolation, desolation to bear and the wonder of God's creation at the outset. How did it become without form and void? Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, and this is Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now, listen, I'm sure you know that the Bible is not presented in chronological order, because there, are, there is just not. Job is actually the first book of the Bible, written. You know, but even so, Many of the events as we read them or things that we read are either prophetic snapshots of what's to come or a prophetic snapshot to give us understanding of what has been. One of the two. And that's what Ezekiel's getting here. By the Spirit of God and it's being recorded as a prophetic utterance to give us a snapshot of what was. And so when we read Ezekiel here, uh, and he says, Son of man, by the Spirit of God, he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the psalm full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, almost all of the commentaries agree this is a prophecy about Satan. Before he had a name change. This is a prophetic glimpse at the truth about Lucifer. And we see him defined as sealing up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in his beauty. This is the way God created Lucifer. His name actually means light bearer. And he goes on to say in verse 13, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, how could, how could this be Lucifer in Eden? I mean, this is, you know, some unknown millions of years perhaps before, uh, you know, Adam showed up. I mean, all we know from the creation account is that in the beginning was in the dateless past. There's only one thing that we can chronologically date to 6,000 years ago. So I want to shoot down the myth that creation began according to the Bible 6,000 years ago. It did not. Carbon dating method, science, and some of its most basic applications can establish that the, the universal creation is probably somewhere in the range of 15 billion years old plus or minus a couple billion years, so we don't really know, so we just say in the dateless past. And this had to be somewhere in the dateless past because, you know, within the context of Genesis 1 and forward, we only know Satan is an evil being. And he's certainly not this beautiful creation full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So this is his description in Eden, the garden of God, long before Adam showed up, 
And it goes on to say about him, every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Beautiful creature. Verse 14 says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Cherub means that he was an angelic being. He was not a human being with a physical body at this point. That wasn't the case in the earth. He was an angelic being, and he was anointed to rule. That's what, you know, uh, covereth means. God had given him rulership authority. We don't really know the extent of that over all of God's creation or the earth or, but you know, most agree that it was to be over God's creation. Lucifer was to be the one that ruled, not Jesus Christ at this point. It was to be Lucifer. He was the cherub that had been given leadership responsibility, the highest of the angelic order, a beautiful being uh, uh, that God had set up for this purpose. And it says, Thou wast upon the holy mountains of a holy mountain of God. That's in the New Jerusalem. That's where he came out of. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Then we see a little about that in, in the next verse, verse 16. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. And thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. So here's the source of the you know, uh, wise proverb that pride comes before the fall. This was Lucifer's problem. He was overtaken with his own beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Wow. So we see that uh, this is the beginning of the problem. And uh, because he was lifted up in pride, he made an assault against heaven itself. And we see that in Isaiah 14, 12. Why don't you look in Isaiah? Now the prophet Isaiah gets a snapshot of something that happened in the past. And he says in verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? What? You mean back in this time? Before Adam, there were nations and cities on this earth? That's what the word says. There were communities of beings that we won't call humans or mankind because they weren't. 
They were hominoid in appearance, meaning they walked uprightly, uh, but, and they perhaps had a larger brain than the animal life, plant life that populated uh, the rest of the earth, but no, they were, they were hominoid, they were social, they developed cities, communities that are called cities, and groups of cities came into a place of national identities. We can assume that because of what we read. Because when he was cast back into the earth, uh, you know, that was long before Adam was around. Humanity as we know it today wasn't even there, and it weakened the nations. And that happened when it says in verse 13, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. As we read from Ezekiel, he was caught up in his own beauty, his own grandeur. Pride had elevated his opinion of himself uh, to that of equality with God. And he said in verse 14, I will send above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. And yet God says, Thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And then, of course, in that process, verse 17 <clears throat> says that that process of his being brought down to the earth that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof. So this is how the world became without form and void. Somewhere in the dateless past, you know, uh, Satan rebelled against God and his defeat and being cast back into the earth uh, is what the, the cataclysm was that made the earth without form and void. And we see the moment that that happened in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, got yet another snapshot of this truth. And he says in verse 23, Jeremiah, by the Spirit, beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. He was seeing exactly what that meant. In verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, he was seeing what that meant. He saw the earth, and it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. No light means no life. No natural light, no biological life, no, no presence of God, no spiritual light. There was no life because there was no light. And he says, in verse 24, I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. There was no life on this earth. It was desolate. It was empty. Plant life, animal life, life of men, as they were called in this day, Everything was gone. He says in verse 26, I beheld the fruitful place was a wilderness. All the cities thereof, here we go, all the cities thereof were broken down. 
at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. So now, the distance between science and the Bible begins to shrink. The only thing that the Bible says to avoid regarding science is false science. He doesn't badmouth science. Science is a form of revelation that applies to this physical world. That came from God. Science is a good thing, but there is false science as surely as uh, there is a word that is not rightly divided. So there are two responsibilities to get to the truth of things, rightly dividing the word and good science. And then both will corroborate what the truth really is. And so you know, now science and the Bible are coming closer and closer together here. I mean, uh, you know, archaeological digs and uh, the arena of science that has to do with geological formations and study of the earth and all of these things uh, revealed that there are evidences of hominoids that walked uprightly on two feet that go back tens and hundreds of thousands of years called Neanderthal, Cro-Mangan man, and even prior to that. Uh, well, that doesn't, that doesn't refute what the Bible says. The Bible talks about this and the fact that these early prehistoric men or whatever you want to call them gathered in communities and actually built things and some of the artifacts that have been found that date back 15, 20,000 years long before uh, of communities that had been put together by who knows who. You know, that's real. That doesn't conflict with the Word of God. Because the only thing we know about the origination of man in his present form is what occurred 6,000 years ago. So then we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 for the account of recreation. And who knows how long that took? It says six days. Well, the Bible makes the case that a day with the Lord isn't the same as a day in our experience. In some places in the Word, a day is as a year. In other places, it says a day is as a thousand years. It depends on what you're using what you're trying to determine. If you're looking at, you know, end time uh, events and, you know, where we are on that timeline, he says to use a thousand years uh, as a day with the Lord. But there are other places when, depending on what he's doing in the Word, it represents something else. So we have no idea what a literal day is for the Lord in the six days of creation. That could have occurred occurred over a period of millions of years, who knows, that he began bringing, you know, uh, this uh, recreation of earth to pass, you know. How long did it take? I, don't re I really don't know. Neither do you, neither does anyone else. But he got to his apex of this recreation, who is man, and the reason... Man is the apex of this current uh, recreative cycle. Um, we see in chapter 1, verse 26, 
which says, God said, let us make man in our image. And he's talking about the Trinity, the Godhead. Let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them, meaning male and female, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God gave us dominion over creeps. I couldn't resist that corny joke. But this is the way God created man now. This is man being created in the image and likeness of God Almighty. To give him rulership authority, not, over the, not just over this earth, but we're going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus over the vastness of the universal creation for eons to come. And this is his man in his image and in his likeness. And he tells him in the next verse, he says this, so God created man in his own image, the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, but he only had one body at this point, one body of flesh that chapter 5 of Genesis tells us he called their name Adam. Male and female created he them and called their name Adam. So this was the initial creation, one body of flesh housing both the male and female components. And so marriage represents the power and the purpose of God being realized in the rejoining of a man and a woman becoming one flesh and now you have authority over this whole creation and everything in it, but only in that condition of one flesh as we see here. Then the next verse tells us this, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and what? Replenish. Clearly implying that this wasn't the first time around. There had already been uh, a population of life forms we can't even imagine. We do see some fossil record of it, whether it be the dinosaurs or prehistoric fish or whatever. I'm not sure where the line got drawn in terms of Lucifer's being cast back into the earth. We're not told that. But at some point, the world that then was was destroyed utterly the recreation process began when God got to mankind. He told them to replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. You are created for dominion and authority, not over one another. You do not exercise dominion over other people, but everything in the earth, everything that moveth upon the earth, every circumstance you will ever face, God's creative purpose was that you walk in absolute dominion over it. And when we finish this plan of redemption that we're studying right now, that's part of what gets redeemed. So that you exercise that each and every moment and every day of your life for the eternal ages to come. Amen. 
You know, I'm running out of time here, um, so let me kind of uh, expedite this just slightly, go to, um, let me see, where do I want to go now? I want to go to where we know to date the beginning of the Bible. Verse 7, Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's what happened 6,000 years ago. That is the creation of humanity and mankind as we know him to be now. This, I guess, would be, be said to be, you know, God's created purpose uh, for every one of us to, to function in this dominion and authority. And what he did with us that he had never done with any being before, even though they may have resembled us physically, they may have some title as prehistoric man that science has given them, but God never breathed the breath of life uh, into a man until this moment. And this is where the begets begin. This is where the genealogies, genealogies begin. This is how you can date it back to 6,000 years ago. This is all we know happened 6,000 years ago. And so basically, um, we can continue reading. In verse 8 it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Well, he had to plant the garden again because the first one that was the home of Lucifer and, and his seat of authority uh, was utterly destroyed in Lucifer's rebellion and uh, casting back into the earth. Uh, he had a name change at that point of Satan or the devil, cast back into the earth with uh, those that he led in revolt against God. We're told in Revelation 12, 7, you can go back and read that in your own leisure. You might think that relates to the end times that are coming, but it doesn't. He's not going to get cast out of heaven at the end of this, you know, dispensation, the beginning of the millennial reign, or at any point. That's already occurred. And you will see that one-third of the angelic host was led in rebellion by him, cast back into the earth, and the apostle John saw that one, a glimpse back in time as lightning into the earth with cataclysmic effect. But so, uh, you know, we know then that uh, God had to replant Eden because, you know, it was all destroyed during that cataclysm. So in verse 8, he's replanting Eden. And then in verse 9, we read, Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, well, you know, uh, to expedite this a little bit, I should say that this is when, you know, the Lord is bringing it all back together again. And uh, there were two principal trees that he called out and spoke about in this process. One was a tree of life, which is gen generally accepted as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was the tree, obviously, that he was instructed not to eat thereof because in the day he did, he would surely die. And that meant not only biological death, which it would mean, but it meant spiritual death. That is a separation from God. Spiritual death occurs when the real you, who is a spirit, is separated from the author and giver of life, who is the Spirit of God. And then spiritually, you have died. And so we understand then that uh, as we read through here, um, the Lord said, I put these two trees in the garden, and he said, you eat of one, don't eat of the other. And we can assume that woman was taken from man after a, after a while. You know, we read in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Well, Adam had already named all the animals in the garden. Why did Adam need a helpmeet? Because he obviously wasn't partaking of the tree of life. He wasn't eating of the tree of life. If he had ever eaten of the tree of life, he would have never partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's actually the original sin. He disobeyed God by not eating of the tree of life. And we know that from what God says in chapter 3 of Genesis. He said we need to get man out of the garden after he had eaten of the wrong tree before he eats of the tree of life and lives eternally in this condition. That's why he was expelled from the garden. So, <clears throat> so we see God making woman for man because he wasn't making it to the tree of life. He needed some help. He'd finished naming the animals. That was the only thing it could be. He needed a help meet. And of course, um, that reminds me of a joke. You mind a joke? All right, a quick joke. Adam's sitting on a rock talking with God one day and and he'd finished naming all the animals in the garden. He says, Lord, all these animals I've, I've, you know, that we've got in the earth, they're wonderful, they're beautiful, but I've noticed that they all have a mate. I don't have a mate. And God said, Adam, I have got a plan for you that is going to be eye-popping and mind-boggling. I'm going to call her woman. And she will rattle your tree. I guarantee you it's going to be the biggest blessing to you that you could even imagine. She is going to be absolutely gorgeous. You won't be able to quit looking at her. And she's going to be the sweetest thing in the world. It's almost like the honey will drip off of her fingertips as she gives you massages at night before you go to bed. And as she brings you breakfast in bed, it is going to be the most awesome thing you can imagine. And Adam was just overcome. He says, Lord, how much is that going to cost me? And the Lord says, an arm and a leg. And Adam said, what can I get for a rib? And the rest is history. <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies. That, that, was a, that was a funny one, though. Um, Anyway, so God creates Eve, brings her to Adam, and, and they too become one flesh. That's what it says here. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. It is a reference 
to the original created, created condition of mankind under one body of flesh. And it's in that condition they had dominion and authority over the whole earth and everything in it. And so, you know, that's the purpose of God, to bring a man and a woman together and form that creature that operates in perfect dominion over all of this earth. Now, if you're single right now, don't, get, don't, don't be getting uptight. I mean, uh, you know, there are different conditions of our life when perhaps we, it doesn't look like we reflect God's highest and best plan or whatever. Uh, but the Bible says that if you're a widow, if you're not married at the moment, God will be your husband. He'll be a father to the fatherless. Uh, I mean, God will be your portion uh, until, you know, uh, the time is right for things to change. So just be mindful of that. But here we go now. So we see in the fall of humanity that everything was positioned for the plan of God to, to bear fruit, but uh, through Eve's deception and the hardness of Adam's heart, because the Bible tells us in the New Testament, Adam knew better. He knew what was going down and chose to be with Eve. But Eve was deceived, and essentially... Um, that meant, if we go back and look at this account, and it's a good account to study because i got to end this. Uh, it's a good account to study because, you know, uh, your relationship with God always moves in the wrong direction when you question His Word because that's the way this started out. Satan approached Eve and said, Hath God said... Thou wilt surely die? Really? And then he proceeds from there. So know that, you know, the most significant consideration for you, uh, to, you know, to think about is if there are parts of the word that you begin to question the validity of. That's why revelation is so important. It will put you on the path to ultimate denial of the Lord. May be a road that you have to follow to get there, but it puts you on that path. And that's why it's so imperative that we accept the Word of God as divine and final authority for all of our life. And you ever start thinking, uh, well, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not sure that's the case. You're on a dangerous path and you need to reverse course. Well, so uh, next Sunday we'll pick up with um, the Old Covenant, God's step toward the redemption of humanity, and uh, then the consummation of that redemption, and if we have time next week into the eternal ages to come. But this is all the plan of redemption. And as you can see, if you don't have any understanding of the things we talked about this morning, a lot of the other stuff that you, you know, the Lord might reveal to you wouldn't be very meaningful. So we start with the larger plan of God to provide context to all of the other mysteries that we'll be studying. That's it. Let's stand, please.